I have read that during the average lifetime, a person will spend two years calling people who aren't home, three years in meetings, and five years waiting in line. That struck me. Imagine five years waiting in line. Nobody likes to wait. I don't personally like to miss a light or an elevator cycle. Uh, I'm, I don't want don't to miss a minute. I like the way one author put it. He said, you know, um, on this perspective, he said, the length of that minute depends on which side of the bathroom door you're on. It's true, isn't it? I grew up in a family of six, one little bathroom, and that minute could last forever. I was uh, driving around Baltimore in the D.C. area this past week, coming back from speaking at a couple of Bible colleges and their chapel sessions, and been away four days, and was on the interstate, and saw, drove underneath a large digital sign that said, delay in eight miles. And I knew in the D.C. area that was not good news. And in fact, I could already see brake lights ahead of me, and I knew that delay was going to cost me an hour or more. I saw on my car rental's GPS system that there was a nearby road running parallel with the interstate, so I took the next exit and, and forced the lady with that British accent to finally stop saying, make a legal U-turn. <laughs> she finally gave up on me. I, I took that side road for exactly 10 miles, hopped back on the interstate, and according to my estimated arrival on the GPS, I only lost four minutes. That was the highlight of my trip right there. That was great. <laughs> I beat that delay. Oh my. Well, the truth is we are by nature impatient people. Some of us probably more than some others. Whether it is a faster internet connection, it now must be lightning fast or we're not satisfied. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a pills that help us avoid the, the, the changing of habits and we can get immediate weight loss. Maybe it's a financial scheme that gets us more money quicker. Whatever. Endurance is something that we admire in, in other people, but we really don't want to develop it in our own lives. We would rather be the master of shortcuts rather than develop patience. We want things on our own timetable, and we want to be able to manage the clock, right? And we learned that early on. In fact, I came across this article written by a first-grade teacher recently who had an interesting interaction on the very first day of of her uh, first-grade class. A little boy in her class named Ryan had been accustomed, of course, to going home uh, at noon, which he did in kindergarten. And so noon arrived, the first day of first grade, and Ryan was getting his things together to leave for home. That's what he was used to doing, and he was supposed to be getting ready to go with the class to lunch. And the teacher, whose name was Linda, said to him, "Uh, what are you doing? He said, I'm going home. She said, I gently explained to him that he was now in the first grade, and he would now have a longer school day. She said, you'll go to eat lunch now, and then you'll come back to the room and do some more work before you go home. Ryan looked 
at her in disbelief, hoping she was kidding. Uh, Finally convinced she was serious, he looked up at her and said, Who on earth signed me up for this program? (laughs) Poor kid. I don't want the agony to last past lunch. I didn't sign up for this. Well, I can't help but think of these uh, Jewish believers as James is writing to to them. and uh, These are dispersed believers. They are Christians who probably would say, you know, we didn't sign up for this. They've been exiled by the Roman Emperor Claudius. They've been unable to go home. It's lasted longer than they had hoped. And so James will begin to encourage them to be patient, to persevere, to endure, to stick it out, to stay in the race. In fact, as I got into this paragraph and read it and reread it and reread it and reread it, one word that came to my mind in, in a word was the word endurance. Slugging through it with commitment and character. When there's no shortcut in sight, uh, when there's no alternate road running parallel, you got to sit through the traffic jam of circumstances in life. When, when life doesn't fit your plans... When you cannot manage the clock, maybe you're there right now and you're saying, Stephen, you're reading my mail. And you would agree, like never before, with a rather humorous but very, very profound statement by Wilson Meisner, who wrote this about life. He said, Life is a tough proposition. The first hundred years are the hardest. Isn't that good? What a way to put the truth out there. One of my. One of my favorite commentators included the story as he wrote on this paragraph of the doctor who called his patient on the phone and said, listen, I've got some bad news and some really bad news for you. The man gulped and said, well, well, give me just the bad news first. The doctor said, you only have 24 hours to live. The man replied, that's terrible news. What could be worse than that? The doctor said, I I was supposed to call you yesterday. (laughs) You know, sometimes life is like that, isn't it? It, One day's bad, and the next day is even worse. Well, what kind of inspired advice would God deliver through James to those believers in the first century and to us in the 21st century who are living some of their worst days with no sign of letting up. Christians who would probably, I believe, be tempted to be saying, who in the world signed me up for this program? Well, to them and us, James will deliver in this next paragraph, in chapter 5, a series of imperatives, some incentives, A couple of illustrations, and we'll get to just the first part of that, but let's pick it up at verse 7 where we left off in chapter 5. A couple of verses today. Therefore, James writes, be patient. An exclamation point goes there because that's an imperative in the original language. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. 
Now, you might recognize that word. We encountered that earlier in chapter 1. The Greek language is a little different. It's interesting to notice this word here is different than the word in chapter 1 where James wrote to let your trials have their perfecting work, which produces patience. Different word here. The word James uses here in chapter 5 refers to refusing to retaliate when you're mistreated. It's defined as a long holding out of the mind before giving way to action or reaction in protest. Now, if you were with us in our last study, we heard James describing the mistreatment of the poor by the rich. We talked about the rich controlling the courts and committing uh, what uh, historians refer to as judicial murder. That is, they withheld payment to these day laborers. They manipulated them the courts to whom the poor looked for defense. Literally removing the ability of the poor to not only defend themselves, but to then make a living. Now, no doubt, many in this audience here were day laborers. They were saying, James, you're reading our mail. They had been brought to to ruin. They were not the abusers. They were the abused. They'd been exiled, mistreated, uh, overlooked, and many of them, no doubt, ruined financially. So James follows up that paragraph with the words, therefore... Be patient. In other words, don't lash out. Don't strike back. But Lord, this is unjust. It's unfair. Will you ever make things right? James anticipates that because the very next phrase, you notice he says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. In fact, if you look just quickly on your own at these three verses, you'll see exactly what I saw as I read the text. You'll see three times James refers to Jesus Christ's return. It's interesting that that is the primary incentive for endurance. The last part of verse 8, the Lord is near. The last part of verse 9, the judge is standing right at the door. He's on the threshold. His hand's on the latch. His foot's there. You see, the ultimate incentive for enduring through the mistreatments and sufferings of life is that Jesus Christ is is coming, he says in this opening statement. The coming. The parousia is the Greek word. Theologians use that categorically to speak of that eschatological moment. The parousia of Jesus Christ is coming. The most important term used throughout the New Testament for the coming of Christ. We know that the parousia will be in two phases. The first phase will be to take away the church from the promised tribulation wrath which God will pour out upon the planet. The second phase of the parousia will be to return with the redeemed and establish that glorious Millennial reign, that thousand-year kingdom reign where Christ will rule from Jerusalem and we will rule with him. Now, as the New Testament unfolds, and James is the first letter in the canon, 
that coming, that parousia, is expanded and explained and, and further defined. But what James does here, as he speaks of the parousia, the first to do so, is he re- reveals a couple of prophetic truths. So I want to do just a little, let's take an alternate road. We'll run parallel to the interstate, okay? We won't lose time, but, but let me give you a couple of prophetic truths. Number one, the coming of Christ is imminent. In other words, it could happen at any moment. Don't be fooled by people who say, well, you see what's happening in the Middle East. Now Jesus can come. Jesus could have come 500 years ago. There's nothing in the way. In fact, the disciples believed he was coming back while they were alive. Paul says, we who are alive shall be caught up. Rapturo, snatched away. Expected it. He writes to the Romans, Paul does in Romans 13, 12, the night is almost gone, the day is near. The writer of Hebrews says that, he tells the believers not to skip church, literally, don't skip the assembly, but be encouraging one another by your presence, your fellowship, your ministry, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Peter writes, the end of all things is near. The apostle John writing in 1 John 2.18 says, children, it is the final hour. That was 1900 some years ago. So it's nearer than ever, is it not? Throughout the New Testament, you need to understand the believers are never told to prepare to experience the wrath of God through the tribulation, but to prepare to see Christ. The joyful incentive for the believer to endure mistreatment and suffering, to stay the course through this present church age makes no sense if the coming of God's wrath is next. And James is telling them, stay the course, not because you are about to enter seven horrific years of enduring God's wrath, which will be unleashed upon you. No. Persevere, endure, hold your course, because your king is coming to deliver you. And he could come at any moment. In fact, right now, John says, uh, or James says, his foot is on the threshold, his hand's on the latch. What's next for the believer in this age? Paul writes this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, not the sufferings of the tribulation, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with what comes next. What is that? The glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, this is all the suffering you're going to encounter, and it can't compare to the glory when Christ raptures you away and it could happen today. G. Campbell Morgan, a British expositor who died in the mid-1900s, started pastoring in the 1800s when he was 17, said this, whenever I think of the coming of Christ, it is the light on the path which makes my present bearable. I never lay my head on my pillow without thinking that maybe before morning dawns, that morning will dawn. I never begin my work in the morning without thinking that perhaps he may interrupt my work and begin his own 
So how do we live in the meantime? Well, James will answer that question by taking us to a farm by way of illustration. Notice the middle part of verse 7. Back up again. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And James provides now this illustration. The farmer waits. The farmer is patient for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Many believe that James spent some years farming along with his brother Jude, who also wrote a letter in your New Testament. James obviously understood the process. Well, he refers to these early and late rains. From my study, I discovered these early rains would be anxiously awaited by the farmer in James' day because, among other things, they softened the hard-baked soil for plowing and sowing, which they did by hand. The latter rains were necessary to mature the crops. The longer those rains continued, the greater the yield. In between the rainy seasons, they weeded, they hoed, they fertilized, whatever else they could do to bring their crops to a fruition. Now, I will tell you that I know absolutely nothing about farming, other than I'm incredibly grateful for those who do. I, I planted tomato plants one time about 15 years ago, and it was an absolute disaster and never tried it since. Uh, my father grew up on a farm in Minnesota. He went into the Air Force. He was saved when he was in the Air Force and the Lord called him into ministry and he went on to Bible college. At different times he would tell us his four sons stories from life on the farm. And all of those stories made me really even happier that he was saved and called to the ministry. And uh, I wasn't raised on a farm. Uh, His day, he would tell us, began earlier than most. Whenever we'd complain about feeding the dog... And watering the dog, he would remind us that he had begun his day at 5 a.m. milking a dozen cows by hand in Minnesota when the weather was five degrees below zero. And then after that, he had to walk over a mile to school in the snow. He had to shoot a rabbit for lunch. I made that part up. That's not true. (laughs) All the other parts were true, though. All of it. In fact, uh, when we complained uh, on one occasion about the, the lunch, uh, mom was fixing us and putting in our lunch pails. You know, we weren't getting the, the right little Debbie snack or, 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 or pistachio pudding or whatever it was. He told us about his day. He carried a raw potato in his pocket as he walked to school. And when he got there, he and the other farm boys would put that potato on that black wood-burning stove, which kept the schoolhouse warm. And by lunchtime, that potato would be cooked and ready to eat. And he'd have a little pat of butter in his overalls and put it out, and that would be his lunch. I mean, how do you complain about pistachio pudding after that kind of story? The older I get, the more I love to hear stories like those. I can't imagine how difficult life would be on a farm. I'm grateful for those who do it. But the most difficult thing about farming from those I've talked to isn't the physical labor, the long hours, but the mental wear and tear. 
You never know what the weather is going to do to everything you've labored to bring to harvest. That's exactly James' point here. He references the patience of farmers and then immediately talks about the weather. <laughs> those, those early and late rains. If they don't come, if they're not timed just right, forget everything you do. Farmers work hard with things under their control. They plant, they weed, they fertilize, but a farmer never sits on his hands and expects a crop. Farmers have to depend, however, on something outside their control, like rain, and that develops patience. His patience does not come from doing nothing. His patience comes from understanding his limitations. We might say, yeah, I'm developing patience. What are you doing? Nothing. I'm developing patience. No, not the farmer. Another observation that strikes me from that world is that even if it rains after doing everything he can possibly do, he goes for months without seeing any visible indication that anything's happening. Yet another observation that comes to my mind is even if it's a bumper crop, he has to do the same thing all over again. There's not a farmer alive who plants one crop and expects to have food for the rest of his life. He has to do it all over again. Stay the course, do the right thing, and repeat it. So what a wonderful illustration of the Christian life. Stay the course, do the right thing, work hard, fertilize your spiritual walk with discipline, plant in your heart the seeds of God's truth. Okay, Lord, I did it. Do it again. Repeat everything you just did. All over again. I know a businessman in our church who works with computers and facts and figures. And he told me some time ago that he spends some of his vacation time volunteering to work on a large farm. He told me that whenever he slips into the seat of that tractor, his perspectives on life get readjusted back to where they ought to be. Farming is the perfect metaphor for the daily, persistent endurance of combining everything that you can do and must do for God while at the same time trusting Him to do for you that which is out of your control. In fact, it's interesting to me that James emphasizes the responsibility of the believer even further. Look at verse 8. He says, You too, be patient. And he adds this, strengthen your hearts. Again, the incentive the coming for the coming of the Lord is near. Strengthen your hearts. Make firm your hearts. The Greek imperative can be rendered literally woodenly for us in this American culture. Prop up your hearts. Prop them up. James is urging us to be decisive in our decisions, actions, to strengthen, to make firm the inner life. Now, in a number of New Testament passages, and you're probably struck with that thought even now as I'm explaining this one, you know that that's described as the work of God, that he strengthens our hearts. 1 Peter 5, 10, 2 Thessalonians 2, 17. But James 
presents this as our due diligence. You prop up your heart. You put steel in your backbone, so to speak. He's telling the suffering believer to literally strengthen their hearts with the promise that Christ is returning soon. See, nowhere are we ever given the idea that we're to put on a white robe, climb a hill, and wait for Jesus to come back. Or hide away in a cave. Endurance means there is a battle you're facing. It means there is a hill you are climbing. It means there's a difficulty you're squaring off on. It's a challenge that you're willing to meet. We admire that in others, don't we? Because we know how difficult it is to develop in our own lives. This is the counsel of God that balances what God does and only God can do with what we must do. I like the way one person put it when he said, even God will not steer a parked car. Let me, let me read you some encouraging words from one author. I don't want to miss a word, so I'm actually going to read the paragraph. Who says this, as you face your challenges of endurance. Did you ever notice that when the Lord told Peter and the other discouraged fishermen to cast their nets again into the water, you remember that scene? That it was right in the same place where they had been working all night and had caught nothing. The same place. If we could only go off to some new place every time we get discouraged, trying again would be easier to do. If we could be somebody else or go somewhere else or do something else, it might not be so hard to have fresh resolve. But it is the same old net in the same old pond. The old temptations are to be battled. The old faults are to be faced. The old trials and discouragements before which we failed yesterday are to be faced yet again today And Jesus Christ speaks the word, let down your nets again in the same place. Do it again. Isn't that good? While you're at it, don't take your frustration out on people who are in the boat with you. That's James' next point. Look at verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. In other words, don't have this as unprofitable actions and deeds in your own life. And, and, and the truth is, is very real. Impatience with God can lead us to being impatient with others, with God's people. James says, stop grumbling against one another, brethren. And, and you think back in the first century, at, at these times, which were tough, their culture was cruel to them. Their, their feelings would be frayed. And our tendency, just as theirs was, evidently James uses the, uh, the tense that lets us know they're doing this. He says, stop doing that. Stop complaining with the brethren. It's tough enough when somebody else in the boat is getting all over you for, for not catching the fish. Stop that. We do the same thing. We come home from work. Bark at the dog, cake at the cat, snap at the kids. The problem isn't them. It's... Maybe something that's happening, and they just happen to get in the line of fire. The problem's actually a little deeper than that. The word James uses for complain 
can be translated groan, to groan. It refers to feelings that are internal and may never be expressed. It it refers to carrying a grudge against someone, and it's, it's kept within. James says, don't do that. Just as their incentive, by the way, for staying the course is the coming of Christ. You notice here again the incentive for not harboring bitter judgments against other believers. Look at the end of verse 9 again. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. In other words, be gracious and patient with others because one day the thoughts and actions and reactions of every believer will be judged. He's not only our coming redeemer, he's our, he's our coming judge, the judgment seat of Christ for only the believer, the great white throne for the unbeliever where sin is exposed, the judgment seat of Christ. First Corinthians chapter 3, where that which we did, thought, said, work, served, that which is unprofitable will be burned away and that which is profitable will be Rewarded Sin is not the issue our deeds for Christ are. We praise God that the blood of Christ has already paid the penalty for all of our sins. Sin will be the issue. But we will wish all the more, won't we? That more of what we thought and more of what we said and more of what we did was worthy of being rewarded by Christ at the Bema because that will then give us the absolute, incomprehensible thrill of giving it back to him. All of life should be lived with the perspective of the parousia. Jesus Christ is returning. That does a couple of things. One, it encourages us when we're beaten, mistreated, tired, misused, maligned, whatever, it's the reminder that all of that is temporary. That's just the first hundred years. That's the tough part. Can't be compared to the glory of the next 100 billion years. It encourages us. It also reminds us to stay the course, to live right, to please Christ, because one day in his grace he'll reward us. And that will give us means to praise him. I found this interesting. The word coming back in verse 7, parousia, includes the idea of presence. Now. Coming. Arrival. But now present. In a way that's true, isn't it? During your toughest assignment, he's present. During your worst suffering, he's at hand. During episodes of mistreatment or maligning, he's aware of it all. and He is available to, to join you as you strengthen your heart, he strengthens your heart. He understands. Eugene Peterson paraphrased that classic text of Jesus Christ, our high priest, Hebrews 4.16, by saying, we don't have a high priest who is out of touch. He's been through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take his mercy, accept 
his help. He is present now. One author wrote about an encounter he had with a blind student, a fellow student. His name was John. He wrote that I I spent a couple of hours a week reading to him to help him in his studies. One day I asked him how he lost his sight. He told me of an accident that happened when he was a teenager and how at that point he had simply given up on life. When the accident happened, he said, and I knew I would never see again, I felt that life had ended as far as I was concerned. I was bitter and angry with God for letting it happen, and I took my anger out on everyone around me. I felt that since I had no future, I wouldn't lift a finger on my own behalf, let others serve me, let others wait on me. I shut my bedroom door and refused to come out except for meals. The author interjects here. The young man I knew was an eager learner, an earnest student along with me. So I had to ask what changed his spirit. He told me this story. Well, One day, in exasperation, my father came into my room and began to give me a heated lecture. He said he was tired of my feeling sorry for myself. He said that winter was coming, and it was still my job to put up the storm windows. He yelled at me, you get those windows up by supper time tonight. And he slammed the door on his way out. Well, John said, that made me so angry that I resolved to do it. Muttering, complaining to myself, I groped my way out to the garage. I found the windows I found the stepladder. I found all the necessary tools and I went to work. I said to myself, they'll be sorry when I fall off this ladder and break my neck. But little by little, groping my way around the house, I finally got the job done. And he stopped and his sightless eyes misted up as he told me, I would find out later that at no time during the day had my father ever been more than four or five feet away from my side. You might think that James is about as uncaring in his advice as that father was to his blind son. Here they are suffering. Here they are mistreated. They are exiled. They can't go home. And he effectively says, buck up. Put some steel in your backbone. Strengthen your heart. Get busy like a farmer with your inner life. But see, both this father and James want nothing more than for all of us to experience this bumper crop of spiritual fruit. It's the fruit of godly character. It's the, it's the fruit of godly conduct. So, so do this and, and do it again and again and again. But keep in mind the Lord is near. Let me summarize James' opening words with two sentences. So he opens this paragraph. First, develop Endurance. Develop endurance while you wait for the Lord 
who is coming to rapture you. And it might be today. Secondly, refuse bitterness. Refuse bitterness. While you wait for the Lord to reward you. And it could be today. So live a little more like a farmer lives. Who is at work with things under his control, who trusts God for things outside his control, and live with this final harvest in view when Jesus Christ comes. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we're thankful for the balance of biblical truth and how your counsel complements. We might be tempted to think, and, and, and in fact we are, Lord, that when we're mistreated or maligned, when that hill is too steep, that, that you would just say, well, come on over here and sit in the corner and, and, and I'll shield you from everything and and then I'll, then I'll come get you before too long. But that's not what you say, is it, Lord? That's not what you say to us. That's not how you encourage us because you know that's a fruitless life. There's no harvest in that. And I wonder wherever you're, you're standing, I don't know your, the details of many of your lives, testimonies. But maybe this passage has effectively read your mail. And, and what you need to do, let's just take a, a minute. Let's take a long minute. You talk with the Lord in whatever resolution there needs to be. Whatever aspect of life needs to be addressed. With that same net the same pond, but with fresh resolve. You talk to the Lord for, for a minute. While believers are talking to the Lord, if you're here today and you don't know Christ personally, the last thing I would ever want to encourage you to do implicitly and directly or to give you the wrong impression, and, and that is that you need to turn over a new leaf and maybe try a little harder. You, you can't try hard enough to ever get into heaven. You can try to please Christ as a believer, but you don't become a child of God by trying, but by accepting Him personally. If you'd like help in that, and maybe that's the resolution that does need to take place in your life, coming to the cross of Christ by faith in Him alone. We want to help you and encourage you with the gospel. Would love that opportunity.